You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 6 through 14 this morning. January 2007 is one of the most important months of my life. One of the things that happened in January 2009, on January 9th, I'm sorry, 2007, January 9th, 2007, I got the year wrong, 2007, on January 9th, Steve Jobs announced that Apple was releasing three revolutionary products, an iPod with touch controls, an MP3 player with touch controls, a mobile phone, and what he called a breakthrough internet communications device. A new iPod, a mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. And the surprise as he described these three new revolutionary products was that it was all going to be in one device, the iPhone. Steve Jobs, I remember him saying, I remember watching this as it streamed as he announced this. I remember him saying, we are going to reinvent the phone. I'm going to reinvent the phone. And I remember even in my youthful mind, I kind of, I did actually, I was skeptical. It's like, really? I'm really going to reinvent the phone? The first iPhones were available for sale June 29th, 2007. Or, yeah, 2007, so we're just coming up on the 15-year anniversary. Today, probably, almost half the people in this room have one in their pockets. I purchased my first one in 2012. Sam talked me into it. And after using it for a few years, I noticed something that surely you've all noticed with your smartphones. Over time, they start to slow down. They start to... They don't handle the newer and newer software updates that come. And if you don't do the software updates, they remind you like every day, have you done the software? So finally you do the software update and they, but then they, as they get older, they don't handle them as well. And although Steve Jobs died in 2011, Apple has continued to try their, uh, or take their, a stab at reinventing the phone. So the bad news is that your phone is going to get old and die But the good news is Apple is always ready with a new phone, with new features to replace it when you're ready. So you're probably used to the cycle. You get a new phone, you get used to new features, the phone slows down, it gets scratches and dings, and then it's time for a new phone with new features. And repeat, new features and new upgrades. Well, this morning we're going to look at another kind of upgrade far more significant than the upgrades that Apple has to offer. Let's look at Hebrews 9, 6 through 14. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, 
but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray once more. Father, your word is breathed out by you through your spirit and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. So would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and our hearts open to receiving your word, that it would be planted deep in us and it would grow and bear fruit in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the first five verses of Hebrews chapter 9 where the author draws our attention to the Old Testament tabernacle. Uh, We followed the author of Hebrews there. We walked through the tabernacle together, the tabernacle, the center of Old Testament worship, the center of worship. And this morning, the author continues to focus on worship while he connects these realities to us this morning. So questions for us this morning, what does it look like for us to serve God today? We see how they served God in the Old Testament tabernacle. What does it look like for us to serve God, to worship God today? Do you ever wonder, what does God want from me? Or do you even wonder, do you ever struggle with your own sense of guilt and inadequacy before a holy God? In order to answer questions like these, you need to understand Aaron's priestly service. Second, you need to understand Christ's priestly service, so that third, you can understand your, your own service to God, coming after Aaron and Christ. So let's turn our attention first to Aaron's service this morning. Look at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the preparations for the tabernacle, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So as we covered last week, the priests, Aaron, and then after him, his sons, into the tabernacle and later into the temple that would be built. They go into the first section performing their ritual duties. They had to go in at least daily, and daily they'd have to go in at least twice a day, we know, to tend to the lampstand and tend to the golden altar of incense. But remember, as we're, as we're thinking about this, we're talking about worship. We're thinking about this in the context of worship. I just want to, to point out, so you look at verse 1, and you see the word worship. 
there. Regulations for worship. And then you look at verse 6, and you see the words, ritual duties. Okay, mark those, the ritual duties of Aaron the priest. And then jump to verse 9, and you see the word worshiper, the conscience of the worshiper. And then in verse 14, the last verse of this, what we're looking at this morning, you see the word to serve, to serve the living God. So those, those four words, worship in verse 1, ritual duties in verse 6, the worshiper in verse 9, and to serve in verse 14. Those are all the same root word in the original language. The, the word means service to God or, or worship to God. The idea is giving God what he rightfully deserves for, uh, from us. Uh, so, so this whole section is about worship and, and the worship of God and the service of God. So in verse 6, when the priests enter the first section of the tabernacle and, and they're performing their ritual duties, they are, they are serving God. They are performing their worship to God in this old covenant, Old Testament system. Which then we move secondly to the second room. This is the exclusive room. This is the holy of holies. This is the most holy place where God himself dwells. This is the room that you have to, you have to cross the, the veil with the cherubim on it into the room with the two cherubim sitting on the mercy seat who are again communicating to us, do not enter. You are not welcome here. Look at verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. One of the things Aaron is required to bring on that day is blood. This would be on the day of atonement. This would be once a year. Aaron brings blood. He would put on the special priestly garments. He would go sacrifice a bull. He would take some of the bull's blood, and he would also take some incense with him, and he would go into the first section. He would put the incense on the incense altar. The room would fill with smoke, and he would go cross the veil, and he would sprinkle that bull blood on the mercy seat. That was for his own sins. And then he would go back out, and he would sacrifice one of two goats, and he would take that goat blood back into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it again, and that was for the sins of the people. The blood symbolizes life. When, when humans choose to sin, what we are choosing is, is death. In order for people to be made right with God, a death has to occur because we have chosen death. Sin deserves judgment, sin deserves death, and that's why Aaron brings blood. That's why Aaron brings blood into the holy of holies. So the high priest, Aaron, would take this blood, if you're part of the Israelite people, if you're going to place ourselves in that context, he would take the blood on your behalf into the holy places, which you are not allowed to enter, ever. Ever. And the author of Hebrews brings up this point in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the, for the present age. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who, who inspired the book of Leviticus, 
who inspired the whole description of the Old Covenant system that we read about in the law. The Holy Spirit indicates by this whole system under the Old Covenant that we do not yet have access to the presence of God. We do not yet have access to the presence. Now, they did have the prom- they did have promises of forgiveness. They did have promises of, of blessings for obedience. They had the promises of the covenant with Abraham. They had, the pro- they had the, well, just the privilege of being part of the, the people of God with the Almighty God dwelling in the midst of their camp. This is a greater privilege than any of the other peoples of the earth at the time. But what they do not have, what we do not have, as long as the tabernacle system of worship stands, is access to the presence of God. The only way you have access to God and God's presence is through priestly representation. Someone who goes in for you, and even he, only once a year. And he goes in and he gets out. The priest is only able to do so much for us. And even as we, we think about what the author of Hebrews brings up here, he enters only an earthly representation of God's true throne room. This is a, this is a throne, the throne room of God made with human hands. God is not, he does not live in places made with human hands. But this is where the earthly priests entered. It was made with materials of this creation. And then, and, and then the other issue is, is he, he only really has goat blood to offer for us. There's a big hint of the inadequacy of this, just in the very fact that Aaron has to go again and again and again, year after year after year, which has implications for our conscience. Look at verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This does not help our conscience to see the blood having to be offered again and again and again. The conscience, right? This, this is your inner self. Your conscience is, is what helps you understand when you're guilty of something. First time I was ever aware of a conscience, I was, remember being very young, I was probably three or four years old. I remember being in the checkout at the grocery store I remember seeing the Butterfinger bar. I couldn't read Butterfinger, but I knew it was candy. I knew it was big and yellow. And my mom was probably paying, and I grabbed one. And I remember we're walking out of the store, but I remember I felt something was wrong. Even at that young of an age, I felt something was wrong. And that came from the conscience that God created in us. It's internal. It, it, it tells you that you are guilty when you're guilty. It tells you you're guilty for things you might not even act on, things like, things like sinful or disordered desires or, or, or simmering bitterness and anger or, or selfish motivations, things that people might not ever even see, might not ever even notice. Your conscience reveals them to you. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant system, it did not address the whole person. It did not, it, it, it was mainly external. 
It's mainly what you can get clean on the outside. It's not that the internal didn't matter. We read in Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's not that the internal wasn't ever, ever addressed, but, but, but the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the cleanliness laws and the food laws and the, the Israelite calendar and even the moral law itself, it did not have the power to change us inside, to cleanse us inside, to reassure us of our, in our consciences of, of a complete payment for our guilt. It did not have the ability to change the inner disposition of our hearts. The old covenant was mainly external. And so worship through the, the tabernacle priesthood, it mainly dealt with food and drink and washings and regulations. It could not perfect the conscience. If you remember back to Hebrews seven nineteen, the law made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect, including the conscience of those who would have, or who would seek to worship God. Until... Until, verse 10 of chapter 9, until the time of reformation. Until the time of what could be said to be, uh, it could be translated a new order to come. The, the old covenant system, tabernacle worship, was never intended to be permanent. It always pointed forward to a time to come uh, when a new covenant would come. A new kind of worship, a new priestly service. This brings us secondly to Christ's service this morning. Christ serves as a priest somewhat analogous to the old covenant priests, but Christ enters a different kind of tent, right? In verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is the one not made with hands, not of this creation. Jesus did not enter the temple, which was, which was the temple was just the permanent version of the tabernacle in Jerusalem when Jesus was alive. He never entered that temple. He didn't enter from the east. He didn't go past the bronze altar, past the bronze basin, into the holy place, past, past the lampstand and the bread, and through the veil and into the holy of holies. He didn't sprinkle any blood on the mercy seat in the temple. The Gospels never record Jesus entering those rooms. Why not? Well, those rooms, according to Hebrews 8, 5, only serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. And, and if Jesus is going to inaugurate a time of reformation, a time of a new order, if he's going to establish something new, we need something new. We need something different. And Jesus is different. Jesus is the high priest who we see in Hebrews 4 verse 14 who passed through the heavens or who, according to Hebrews 7.26, is exalted above the heavens. Or as we see at the beginning of chapter 8, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, not, not the one made with human hands of, of materials of this creation, but one that the Lord himself set up. This is why it's so, in celebrate, or so important that we celebrate not just the life and ministry of Jesus and not just the 
crucifixion and death of Jesus, not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the ascension of Jesus. The moment at the end of the Gospel of Luke, in the beginning of the book of Acts, which we've just been looking at a couple weeks ago, that moment is so crucial because, because as Jesus enters God's presence through that greater and more perfect tent, we have a high priest of so much higher caliber, so much higher, and, what, and he is of higher caliber because of what we see in verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And in one sense, Jesus does not follow, or I guess no, in one sense, he does follow a similar progression as the tabernacle, but it's, it's definitely different. He doesn't offer himself on the altar. Instead of, of entering into the tabernacle court, Jesus walks the road to Golgotha. Instead of offering an animal for the sacrifice, he offers himself. He dies on the cross. Instead of shedding animal or goat blood, he sheds his own blood. His own blood. His blood, which is the most valuable blood of any human being who has ever lived. This is the blood of the incarnate Son of God. Instead of the animal death, Christ offers his life. Christ dies, is buried, he rises, and he ascends into the heavens, into the holy of holies, exalted above the heavens, and he doesn't sprinkle blood and get out. He has holes in his hands and feet as a testimony to the sacrifice that he paid, and he stays there. He sits down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. His sacrifice, blood, and priestly service are so effective. Well, look how effective they're described in verse 12. They're described as effective once for all. We've already seen this phrase in Hebrews chapter 7, once for all. He does this one time. The high priest Aaron does it again and again and again. Christ does it once. This is different. He enters the Holy of Holies and he sits down. The Roman Catholic Church might suggest otherwise, that we need to return to the sacrifice of Christ again and again and again, but that is much closer to the, to the old covenant priestly system than what we see in at least the book of Hebrews here. That old covenant system was never meant to be permanent, to be revived again and again. You think how sad it is that after the temple of the curtain tore in two when Jesus died, there were actually priests who went and sewed that veil back together, erecting the, the separation between us and God again. So if that's what we want, that's what we're more comfortable with, with a conscience of the worshiper never perfected. We, we do not honor Christ by calling men priests when Christ is now our heavenly priest. We do not honor Christ by reinstituting an old covenant sacrificial system, but we just put it in Christ's name, proposing that his blood, or proposing to offer his blood instead of animal blood. Uh, we do not honor Christ by continually claiming to offer Christ's blood on a repetitive basis because his, his sacrifice is once for all. He sat down in heaven. He is still in heaven right now. 
for you if you will trust him by faith. It's once and it's also for all, for all. Not only was his one sacrifice sufficient so that we can truly know it is finished, his sacrifice is sufficient for all who will turn away from sin and put their faith in him. His sacrifice is sufficient for you. His blood is so infinitely valuable that that it can purchase the salvation of all who will come to him in faith. So the question for every single one of us is, is, will you come to him in faith for forgiveness of sins, for everlasting life? And because he entered once for all, after offering an infinitely valuable sacrifice, at the end of verse 12, tells us what he secures for his people, an eternal redemption. If you are in Christ, there is no expiration date on your redemption. There is no fine print that says, used by such and such a date. Redemption in Christ is once for all. That is final and and all-encompassing, and it's also eternal. That is everlasting, permanent, which has a particular effect on our conscience. Look at verse 13. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Because of Christ's blood and sacrifice and offering, we are not just cleansed on the outside. Christ has not simply set up for us uh, an external religious observance. If if your Christianity is substantially an attendance record at church, if it's substantially just a list of good deeds done for others, if it's a list of things that you don't do, or if it's a list of things you do do, if it's in any way just some kind of record of religious observance, you might actually not know the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ. His blood does not merely create a religious system for us. His blood offered through the Holy Spirit purifies the conscience from dead works. What are dead works? This blood of infinite worth, it accomplishes something purification of the conscience from dead works. So what are the dead works our conscience is purified from? It it, it begins with the works we seek to do to earn our salvation, which are worthless. You cannot earn God's favor with your works. God is not impressed by the list of things you don't do or even by the list of things you do. They are like filthy rags. Our righteous acts are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. You cannot do good enough. But we're also saved from dead works. Our conscience is purified from dead works that, that we do apart from salvation, not just things that we do to try to earn our salvation. It's also everything we do apart from salvation. Everything that you do in sin apart from Christ is dead. It's dead. Everything that you invest yourself in, everything you store up, everything you collect, 
all the things you work for, all the institutions you build, anything you post online, all the hours you put in to whatever it is you do are, are worthless. They're ultimately worthless apart from Christ. Because you will die, and they will die with you, and your legacy will slowly fade away. And for most of us, our legacy will quickly fade away. Most of us can't even name our great-great-grandparents. But if you know Christ, things are different. If Christ is your priest, things are different. If Christ is your heavenly high priest, he knows your name. He remembers your name. He died for your sins and offered blood of infinite value so your conscience can be clean. Not because of what you do, but because of what he has done. And as a result, you can actually do things of eternal value. Things that actually have an effect on eternity. That don't die with you at the point of death, but actually go on to bless you forever, which leads us third and finally to your own priestly service. In verse 14, the author says, the blood of Christ is able to purify the conscience for what? At the end of verse 14, to serve the living God. And again, the word serve here is the same word, the same root word as we see in the word worship up above in verse 1. So we have our own priestly service that we are called to in Christ. The question is, what does that look like? Well, let's, look, let's take the lens that the author of Hebrews has given us here, looking at the tent and the blood and the holy places and the conscience to understand our own priestly service. The tent is where the priest serves. So Aaron served in the tabernacle. Christ serves in the heavenly throne room of God. The, 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 the tent is an indication of where this takes place. So, so where do you serve God? Where are you to worship God? <clears throat> to understand where you need to see the connection between the Holy Spirit and the temple. So track with me here. We're not going to turn to the texts for the sake of time, but, but as we think back to the Old Testament tabernacle, once it's completed... They finish it. They make it exactly according to how God told, told Moses. We know because we get a whole record for another six chapters of how they exactly built the tabernacle, exactly how it said earlier. And at the end, in Exodus chapter 40, God comes down through the Holy Spirit in this cloud that comes and fills the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord appears. And Moses isn't able to go in anymore because the glory of the Lord through the Holy Spirit seen through this cloud, comes into the tabernacle. And then 500 years later, they build the temple in Jerusalem, right? Just the bigger, more, even more glorious, impressive version of the tabernacle. And once again, after the priests go in and consecrate it, the same thing again. God, the Holy Spirit, comes down in the cloud and fills the tabernacle, and the priests cannot enter anymore because God is there. So in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God dwelt with his people through the tabernacle and the temple in and by the Holy Spirit. All right, now let's move forward to the New Testament. <clears throat> we have the Holy Spirit working in a new kind of way. We have the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary that the Holy Spirit's going to do something new. The way that the, that the Virgin Mary is going to conceive 
the Lord Jesus in her womb is that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow her. The Holy Spirit that once filled the temple is now going to fill this womb. And we have, we have then the Gospel of John, John introducing Jesus to us, telling us that the Word, which, he, which, is, which refers to Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there is the Greek word for tabernacle. So literally, Jesus took on human flesh and tabernacled among us. So once again, God dwells with his people by the Holy Spirit, but this time in a much more significant way. If, if the tabernacle is, is the boundless God binding himself to, the, to a box, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ is the boundless God binding himself to a human being. Much more significant, much more wonderful, much more mysterious. But how does this relate to where we serve? How we serve God? How we worship God? Well, Jesus lives, he dies, he rises, he ascends, which is followed by what? Pentecost. The sending of the Holy Spirit to what end? That God might dwell in us. So that we have descriptions like Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 in the New Testament. Which reminds new covenant believers of this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the, in the Lord. And Ephesians 2, says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. So in the new covenant, <clears throat> the people of God become the temple of God. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit, who, who dwelt in the unapproachable ta- tabernacle, now dwells, well, so first, he dwelt in the unapproachable tabernacle, and then dwelt uh, and overshadowed and brought forth life in the womb of Mary, that Holy Spirit now dwells in you if you're in Christ, which has implications for our priestly service, which has implications for both individual worship and also corporate worship. Individually, in in one sense, your priestly service then can take place anywhere. Anywhere. In Christ, there's a sense in which you are a walking temple of God. The presence of Christ in the Spirit goes with you. I mean, this is mind-blowing, but this, this informs how we think about our entire lives. The Christian is to think of his or her life as a priestly service to God. Everything done according to the Word of God, filled by and empowered by the Spirit of God, is our priestly service to God. Everything we do is to be holy. And in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, everything we do can be holy. 
But then there's corporate implications too. There's implications. Well, you're, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit individually, but not merely individually all by yourself. That's not all that the Bible, that the new covenant has for the idea that now the Spirit dwells in us. Ephesians says that, that we're built together into a temple, into God's temple. So we experience and bear witness to this when we gather together. We worship God together. We worship God through Christ in the Holy Spirit. So when God's people gather in Christ's name, filled with the Holy Spirit, we are in the presence of God. Christ is among us. So this is why corporate worship is kind of a big deal. What are we doing here right now? We're here in the presence of Christ to be sustained by his word, illumined and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Which is why just a casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitude to corporate worship really makes no sense in light of the new covenant. This, it is this gathering that directs our, our collective attention together to Christ. It is this gathering that gives us the unique privilege of worshiping Christ together. It's this gathering that allows us to experience the fact that that we are part of the collective dwelling place of God. That just just as it was uh, just as it was amazing to enter the tabernacle in the Old Testament, just as it was to enter God's presence, just as that was to be a, a taste of heaven on earth. So now, gathering God's people with God's people, the church in in, in the new covenant is. It's an experience, a taste of heaven on earth. And just one implication of this is is, is that we don't need to manufacture spirituality when we gather together on on Sunday mornings, when we're together. We don't need to we don't need to muster it up somehow. I mean, because I mean, it's not hard to think. You know, really, this is heaven on earth. It's like eighty-five degrees in here. This is heaven on earth. But some people find what we are here to do. And even we, I think, too often can find what we're here to do so unimpressive. Boring, even. And so we need to make it, we need to spice it up somehow, right? We need to add spiritual sounding language. We need to add spiritual-sounding architecture and, and, and art, a spiritual-sounding liturgy. We need to turn the lights off and, and, and add some different lighting. We need, to, we need to do music in a way that feels more spiritual. Now, some of those things, properly ordered, have their, their proper place. Uh, we have to have some kind of liturgy, and it can correspond more or less to scripture, and we, we, we should want it to correspond more. We are going to sing, and music does have an effect on, on us. But the problem is that none of those things in and of themselves make us spiritual. The gathering of the local church is spiritual because God makes it so through his word, which is why corporate worship 
is, is a matter of reading the word and praying the word and singing the word and preaching the word and then seeing the word through baptism and communion. In all that, we are engaging in biblical spiritual worship. We're in, we're, it might not look impressive. It might look like just religious exercise on the outside, and it can become that. But through the word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith, something supernatural and eternal is taking place when we gather like we're gathered right now. So where do we serve God? Where do we worship God? In one sense, anywhere and everywhere, our whole lives. And then in another sense, specifically right here. Next, what is your priestly service in terms of blood? You don't need blood anymore. We don't need to offer blood. There's no more blood to bring. So what should we bring? What do we bring in our priestly service? Well, it is, it is finished. There's nothing to bring but, but yourself, which is exactly how Paul describes it in texts like Romans 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or at the end of the book of Hebrews, the author writes, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We don't bring blood sacrifices anymore. We offer ourselves created in the image of God, being conformed now after being fallen sinners, being conformed into the image of Christ. That is our priestly service. We, we, we offer ourselves. We offer praise to the God from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. That's what we offer. Not because he needs it, not because it adds anything to him, but that's because what we're created for. That's why we exist. What about the holy places? What does our service look like in terms of the holy places? The, the earthly holy place, which we once had no access to, or which God's people had no longer had, or did not have access to, except for the priests once a year, that holy place <laughs> wonderfully and mysteriously, is now in us. The heavenly holy place from which we were once caught off is now a place that we have full participation in through our heavenly high priest. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the ways, one of the forms our priestly service to God is lived out, is in prayer, is in drawing near to the throne of grace through Jesus our high priest. We no longer need to rely on the prayers of the Levitical priests who offered up prayers to God along with the burning incense our prayers go directly to God through the Son in, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never, never underestimate the power and the privilege of prayer that we have because of the blood of the new covenant. By it, by through prayer, we have help in time of need. John Owen 
who is one of the most famous Puritans on this subject, said this. He said, understanding this one thing, understanding this one thing, the, the, the fact that you can approach the throne of God in prayer through Christ our high priest, understanding that will help you fight sin and give you faster relief, he says, than all the rigidest means of self-maceration that ever any of the sons of men engaged themselves unto. Which is to say, knowing you can ask for help at any time from Christ the high priest is far more effective than the the strictest self-discipline you can muster up. Do you know Do you know that you can go to Christ at any time for grace and mercy in time of need? We go far too infrequently. We go far too infrequently to God in times of need. And we are needy. Finally, conscience. We conduct our priestly service with a purified conscience. Because of the priesthood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ, your sins no longer define you. And far too many of us walk through life as if our sin still defines us. It is an offense to the infinite value of Christ's blood. You, trusting in Christ by faith, are clean. Outside, and insides, which means you are free to worship God. You are free to do the very thing you are created for. Question one of the Westminster Larder Catechism says, what is the chief and highest end of man? What is the chief and highest reason we were created? The chief, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. It's just another way to summarize your priestly duty. What it means to worship God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. January 2007 was one of the most important months of my life, but it wasn't because of the announcement of the iPhone. iPhone's interesting. It certainly has changed the world. It certainly changed our lives. But the iPhone was just the beginning of another thing in this world that gets old and becomes useless, that that runs out of batteries and won't power up up anymore, that that struggles with software updates and gets bogged down, that, that will need to be replaced again and again and again. January 2007 is one of the most important months of my life, personally, because of what took place one week before the iPhone was announced. When I was in Minneapolis and I walked into a bookstore desperate for life with my conscience weighing on me. I wouldn't have articulated that, but that is what was the case. And I picked up a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And I was introduced to the God of the Bible in a way I had never been introduced before. The Bible, which describes salvation as being made clear through a series of covenants in Scripture, agreements that God makes with his people. And just like there is an old iPhone and a new iPhone, there is an old covenant and a new covenant. 
But unlike these things, these goofy devices that we carry in our pockets, which, they, which grow old and obsolete, like the old covenant, the new covenant will never, ever wear out. It was ratified with the blood of infinite value. It was purchased once, and it was purchased once for all who will follow Christ by faith. It was purchased to secure an eternal redemption. It was purchased to cleanse your conscience so that you can worship and serve your creator, the God who made you, the God who has a purpose for you sitting here this morning and breathing breath, oxygen into your lungs and carbon dioxide out of your lungs. There's a purpose for it, and it is to worship and serve your creator, or in other words, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 